Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. My name is Matt, and I recently had a chance to speak with author and all-around cool cucumber Matt Segal. Yeah, he's just a really composed fellow, I would say. Um, We talked about his recent book, which has the snappy title, Crossing the Threshold, Etheric Imagination in the Post-Kantian Process Philosophy of Schelling and Whitehead. I really enjoyed it. It reads beautifully and is, I don't know, kind of part philosophical detective story, part intervention, and uh, part articulation of a way beyond Kant, as the title suggests. There's a lot more I suppose we could have gotten into. Um, I feel like we just scratched the surface with things. Um, I would have loved to have talked more about Nietzsche and Schelling. Uh, Speaking of Schelling, some of you may have seen this. A while back I invited Zizek on to talk about Schelling, and he wrote back and said he's too tired and old, something like that, which I thought was kind of hysterical, and so screenshotted it, and yeah, that made the rounds on social media. Um, Anyway, if you like the discussion, I definitely urge you to buy the book and check out his long-running blog and website called Footnotes to Plato, and I'll link to all that stuff. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. If you go there, you'll see a big button that says, leave us a message, as that suggests. If you click on it, you'll be able to leave us a voice message that we'll more than likely respond to in an upcoming episode. Yeah, would love to hear your thoughts about this episode or, or anything else that's on your mind. All right, here is Matt Segal. Peace. Yeah, I'm Matt Siegel. I'm an associate professor at a graduate school called California Institute of Integral Studies, and I teach there in a program that's called Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness. And so you can tell already from the name, it's a very interdisciplinary program. We even strive for transdisciplinarity. And in my own research, I think of myself as um, attempting as a philosopher, process philosopher in particular, uh, to engage in dialogue across disciplines. Um, Much of my work of late has been focused on um, natural science, uh, physics, and biology, and the study of, of consciousness, um, which is sort of, it lives in the borderlands between philosophy and, and neuroscience, cognitive science, uh, still at this point. And I, I seek out scientists who are interested in metaphysics and the sort of underlying, oh, my cat, or is that the wind? Uh, that was the, the cat. Cat, okay. Yeah. Um, that's my cat, Philo. Um, nice bit of a troublemaker sometimes, especially when I'm on camera. But yeah, I, I try to engage with scientists who are interested in the philosophical implications of their work to spell out um, what the limitations of a kind of materialist approach to science are and how for much of the 20th century, despite quantum and relativity theory kind of destroying that old mechanistic philosophy, there hasn't really been a sustained and successful effort to replace that old cosmology or metaphysics with something more adequate, um, something, as Whitehead would say, would, would, would rest on a more organic and relational basis. And so as a philosopher, I'm constantly uh, reaching out to these sort of new paradigm scientific thinkers, 
to, to build bridges. Um, but I'm also very interested in the application of process thought to different social issues, politics, culture, meaning, the so-called meaning crisis, as some people are calling it nowadays, um, and connecting also with, with religious studies and theology. Um, Whitehead obviously has been kept in print for many decades after his death because of the work of process theologians. And I think that work is very valuable, not only for theology and this sort of thinking about the nature of divinity, but also in a more practical way for pastoral work, for, for people trying to, to build community around some form of um, spirituality, whether that's within uh, Christianity or, or some other world religion or some new emerging form of spirituality. So I'm kind of all over the map. And um, that's um, less common in academic philosophy, uh, unfortunately. But, um, you know, I try to avoid speaking out of turn or kind of swerving out of my lane and really stay focused on the metaphysical and conceptual and philosophical issues at play in all these other disciplines. But the good news is there always are um, ways that philosophy is relevant and so um, in this this book that I just published is originally my dissertation. I took several years to revise it, uh, reorganize it, but it's it's basically my my thesis remains intact. And the basic idea is that part of this new organic cosmology that I think Whitehead articulated for us so well is it requires a, a transformation of our our very mode of perception of the world. And indeed, I think if you grasp the sort of new concepts and categories that Whitehead puts forward, it really does end up transforming your perception of the world as well. Yeah. And um, the title of the book, Crossing the Threshold, Etheric Imagination in the Post-Kantian Process Philosophy of Schelling and Whitehead, and we can talk a bit about Schelling here too, but etheric imagination is this, this term I'm proposing to describe a kind of new organ of perception, which would allow us to peer below the sort of sensory surfaces of the world, what Whitehead would, would call, you know, the world as it appears in presentational immediacy, to really begin to partake in, to participate in um, causal vectors or vector feelings in, in Whitehead's terms that are beneath those sensory surfaces. Uh, mm -hmm. That is Whitehead, you know, would, would say we feel in our own bodily feelings, the feelings of the viscera, yeah. um, and that we can generalize our experience of these, what, quasi-conscious feelings of transmission and bodily inheritance, we can generalize that to understand what's going on beneath the surface that appears to our, our eyes, let's say, uh, when we look at at the rest of the natural world, plants, animals, and so on, that there is an interior dimension there and that we can actually develop a new kind of cognition, a new kind of perception that would grant us participation in this interior dimension of the natural world. Yeah. I think that's one of the things I, I find really alluring about the sort of shift from, as you, you say, um, presentational immediacy to these more immediate experiences. Um, in the circles that I run with, there's a lot of talk about, and there's more attention given these days, which I think is good to the body and to, and to embodiment. Um, but I feel like a lot of times it's still understanding the body as an object, if that makes sense. It's just a sort of revaluation of the object. Um, and what you're talking about, I think it, it requires like participation. It's as much a bodily exercise as it is a philosophical one. Mm -hmm. That's a sense that at least I got from some of the things that you were writing in the book and some of the things you said now. And there's a lot of things I like about the book, the writing, very clear, or at least as clear as you can be when talking about Kant. 
Um, but he's really and uh, beautiful at times, I think. And what, one of the things I was struck by, I would say, are the more uh, hermetic and and sort of uh, theurgic elements. I was wondering if you could talk about that because you know you don't read too much of that in in academic literature. Um, and you know I do think that's changing a bit. Um, my sense is that more people are exhausted with you know things like critical theory and so on, and turning towards. I don't know, I guess these more like classical or even esoteric resources. I don't know. Do you think that's right? Um, and what would you attribute that to? I and mean, maybe you can, you know, just speak from your own experience. Yeah, I do think that the, the tide is turning on that front. And, you know, the idea here is not to forego our critical faculties and sure. just, you know, dive headfirst into uh, some sort of belief system, but to really engage spirituality as an experiential exercise that requires transformation of us. And I think in the modern period and, and particularly in the last you know century and a half or so as universities have become increasingly professionalized and disciplines have become more and more specialized, philosophy in that context has sort of foregone the importance of um, transforming the instrument of knowing so as to become adequate to that which we seek to know. And really, I guess since sometimes Descartes is pointed to as this turning point where mm -hmm. the, the subject doesn't need to transform themselves, they just need to look through their senses and have an adequate understanding of logic and everything follows from that. And what I am, am trying to do in this book is, is to say, well, when we do philosophy, we're thinking, but we're also feeling and willing, and that the human being, the human soul, if, if you, we want to use this more ancient language, classical language, is is constituted by these three modalities, let's say, thinking, feeling, willing. And we can't leave out the feeling and the willing. You know, maybe these things get included, you know, feeling when we're doing aesthetics or willing when we're when we're doing ethics. But even there, there's a tendency to to be very um, conceptual about it. And we're really just thinking about feeling. We're thinking about willing. <laughs> yeah. And these categories, they they bleed, right? Oh, sure. These are not watertight. I'm not trying to reproduce a faculty psychology or something. Yeah. Um, they bleed together for sure. But I think we get the sense of, of what I'm trying to differentiate here. Willing is, you know, particularly relevant here because, you know, sometimes we dismiss willing as belief and we don't want beliefs to get in the way of, you know, when we're doing philosophical epistemology, we, we, we want to justify everything. And maybe if we have beliefs, we've, we've justified them rationally. Um, but there's a dimension to willing that I think we would want to distinguish, which I would call faith, which is less about um, belief or certainty in an idea, but more an openness to being transformed, hmm. right? And so if you approach a, an inquiry with faith, it doesn't mean you're coming preloaded with preconceptions. It means you're approaching it to be open to being transformed by it, hmm. Um and so, you know, these Neoplatonic ideas of, of like theurgy, you know, for me are part of what happens when you don't just think about the divine or spirit as an idea, but you really are open to the possibility that, um, that there's something real here and you allow yourself to be transformed by that possibility. And this is not easy. And I don't think we can or should engage in that type of work, um, we need to be careful that we're not seeking to fulfill wishes. <laughs> right. Uh, but we also, I think, need to be open to the possibility that without a kind of faith, which again is this openness, 
there are certain features of the world or of, of reality that won't disclose themselves to us. Yeah, that's an interesting um, take on faith. You know, it's a question that I, I used to spend, you know, a fair amount of time thinking about coming out of, um, you know, more explicitly Christian context. I always like to think about faith, uh, simply put as like acting as if, I guess there's an openness there to the imaginative exercise, right? And then there's a performance that goes along with that particular, um, to whatever that, that idea is. But yeah, I mean, you're right. I think that we don't want to return to, I mean, there's a reason why your book is called post-Kantian. It's not pre-Kantian. Right. Um, maybe you can say something about the importance of Kant for what it is that you want to do, because you really do set him up as a, I think you describe him as a sort of guardian of sorts, uh, an epistemological guardian. Yeah. Well, I think his criticism of what he called dogmatic philosophy is an important challenge to anyone who would claim knowledge of something like the soul or or god or even the cosmos in the world right and i mean these three big ideas the soul the divine and and the world or the cosmos kant explicitly forbids us because we have no sensory experience of them he forbids knowledge of them and i think if one doesn't grapple with his criticism of the idea that we could know them then we're liable to just fall back into a, a dogmatic mode of philosophizing and so in drawing upon these thinkers, Schelling, who was right there, one of the, you know, he was the first generation of thinkers to respond to Kant in Germany and attempt to sort of push beyond this threshold, this, this limit in human knowledge. Um, and he did so by really leaning into feeling and, and, and willing in some ways, you could say, um, building on what Kant began in his third and final critique, the critique of judgment. There's a lot in that third critique that shows the way beyond the limits that Kant himself had erected for human knowledge. And it's through aesthetics and it's through an understanding of the organic world of life. And, and Schelling really exploits those, I think you could almost call them cracks in the Kantian edifice and articulates a whole new approach to, to cosmology, to, to metaphysics in light of what Kant kind of unwittingly discovers, but doesn't fully exploit in those, in that final critique. And Whitehead, I put him in lineage with Schelling in this book because I want to read Whitehead as post-Kantian, despite what Whitehead says in the preface to Process and Reality, that he found it necessary to recur to pre-Kantian modes of thought. Some people have read that as, oh, he's going back to dogmatism. He's not critical. He's not aware of this transcendental maneuver, but that's not true at all. I mean, he goes on to cite Kant quite a bit and to engage quite deeply and provocatively with very technical details in, in Kant's critique of pure reason. And so I read Whitehead against his his word. I don't. I don't I, I, he does find it important to go back to Hume and Locke. And well, I wonder if he meant more of like a sort of you know Platonic or even pre-Socratic mm. philosophy. Yeah, I mean, he does certainly engage with Plato. I think he was really just trying to say that there were some wrong turns made mm. in in Hume, in particular, with regard to what he calls the sensationalist doctrine that Kant picks up and doesn't correct, and that leads. You know, he basically thinks that the Kantian critiques are unnecessary if you don't make that mistake. Right. By, by basically the mistake being of, you know, taking this um, human reading of raw sense data as though that were the primal mode of experience when Whitehead thinks that causal efficacy is, and feelings of bodily inheritance are what are most fundamental. Yeah, it's not like those things are wrong, right? Like the empiricism can stay. It just doesn't yeah. go, it doesn't go far enough. The empiricism is essential for science. I mean, yeah. and scientific measurement, as Whitehead goes on to elaborate it, some 
detail, almost um, laborious detail in part four of process and reality. I haven't read it. I haven't read that part. I was I was advised not to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the point is, it, yeah, it's absolutely still relevant to take sense data seriously and the precision that it affords, but the vagueness of causal efficacy, the feelings of the viscera and all of this, the feeling of, of inheritance and transmission, this is what's actually primordial in our experience. And philosophy gets off on the wrong foot when it starts to build up a picture of reality just from uh, the clear and distinct sense of presentational immediacy. Yeah. And so, yeah, Kant's the guardian of the threshold. I really wanted to test these claims to a new kind of experiential knowledge mm. of what he called the soul, the divine and, and the world or the cosmos. Uh, I wanted to test it against his critiques and show that, you know, one can internalize what he was trying to resist. And it's important to note though, that Kant himself saw him, he understood his critiques as an attempt to put metaphysics on a scientific ground. So he wasn't saying, oh, we can't do metaphysics. He was saying, if we're going to do metaphysics, it must, it must arise out of this understanding of the mind's relationship to phenomena and, and it must be transcendental. And I, in the book, do a little bit of a play on words and say, yes, we can go through the transcendental critiques into this more Schlangian and Whiteheadian approach, which I call descendental philosophy, in the sense that it descends into the bodily feeling and recognizes that, say, space and time are not just forms of our own intuition, but are rather this field of possibility that is achieved by this society of or ecology, if you want, of organisms, yeah. uh, stretching back billions of years in, in this cosmic process that, that we are part of. Yeah. When I was reading um, Karen Barad a little while ago, it, it was really helpful in my thinking. And I think she goes a long way in explaining and somewhere in there about why space and time are not, they're not containers. They're not these transcendental categories, but are actually produced in and through relations. Exactly. Uh, that sort of thing. So I really like that image and that, I guess that language too of crossing the threshold. It's the title of the book, especially with the way that you have the book organized, I thought was really clever in the sense that it's not just a crossing, but a, a, a chiasmic structure where it's a sort of inversion, I guess, or a reversal of Kant. Um, and I, you know, I think most people who, who have never even heard of Kant are still good Kantians. Yeah. You know, one of the things about indoctrination, I think that's so hard to overcome is the way that the doctrine, you know, whatever that may be, we're talking here about the sensationalist doctrine, I guess, right? Um, that's something that isn't typically made explicit. It's just kind of like the this kind of constellation of assumptions that you, you inherit. And I think it's a really good case for holding to that understanding of philosophy as uh, one of the tasks being, you know, to corrupt the youth. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Right. And, and uh, uh, set them free. And I think projects like these are really difficult I mean, for a number of reasons. But I remember reading Process and Reality for the first time just um, a few years ago. It was as much an initiatory text as it was a, a philosophical one. And I think there is, and getting to your, what you're saying about developing organs of perception and so on, I think there is a sort of metanoia that can happen. Uh, through an engagement with process thought. And I don't know, I guess I'm just curious to hear any thoughts you might have on the on that sort of initiatory aspect of uh, philosophy in general and what the importance of that might be. Yeah. I always go back to Socrates, who in uh, the Phaedo, I believe, 
just before he drinks the hemlock, he tells all his students who are just hysterical and have I taught you nothing? Like philosophy is learning to die. And the initiation that comes with loving wisdom is looking squarely in the, in the face of death and finding meaning in the fact that we're all going to die. And so rather than pushing that off, rather than turning away and not facing it, the philosophic life is a life lived in love with wisdom is one which, which looks squarely at that fact and finds in that threshold, which we know is the end of something, uh, a kind of radiance that illuminates life in a totally new way. And I think there are various practices and exercises and so on to sort of actually engage in this preparation for dying, but um, which one each of us chooses if, if we do choose to live a philosophical life. I mean, that's up to, to us and I think they can all be effective, but the point is we're not living in denial of the inevitable. And there's a way, I mean, just, you know, for myself of being able to engage meaningfully in one's, I could use a word like karma or dharma even, or just engaging in the calling that, that shapes one's life, that once you've just fully acknowledged that at the end of it, you're going to die, I think it frees up resources for fully giving oneself to the task mm-hmm. Or the calling that that one that one uh, engages and and responds to in life, initiation doesn't mean you have knowledge of something. And I think it's important to recall that philosophy is the love of wisdom. It's not being wise. I mean, Hegel claimed at the end of the phenomenology, basically, that he was no longer a philosopher because he had become wise. But I don't I don't see it that way. We're in love with wisdom. We don't have knowledge of what is across that threshold of death, but we do know that we're going to die. Mm-hmm. And I think staying in that unknowing is really essential for this sort of transformation that can happen in how we regard life. Um, love is a big part of it. Um, the point here would be just to to look at life through the eyes of death, as it were, right? Rather than look at life as everything that death is not or or death as some kind of enemy or horrible thing that we must avoid at all costs because if if we do that i don't know that we're really alive anymore Hmm. i think that's fair um it can also become like abstracted you know like i think everyone knows they're gonna die i mean i don't think that's uh, a big secret um yeah certainly you know an awareness of that i think can uh, inform how we participate in the world but i think perhaps even more i don't know what the word is effective is actually dying in life I don't, know if, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but um, I feel like I've died a couple of times already. Yeah. Um, uh, I wouldn't recommend it. Right. But yeah, that kind of opens you up to uh, kind of new possibilities. But you were talking in there about, uh, I think you said practices or there is this one bit, you have a quote, or what page is on? Actually, there's, there's a couple of things in this one. Um, the bottom of 108. Because the human being, body and soul, is itself composed of societies of actual occasions, human experience can still be taken as an example upon which to found the generalized description required for metaphysics. In order to avoid anthropomorphically projecting the more superficial dimensions of our uniquely human kind of conscious experience onto the cosmic substructures giving rise to us, 
we must subject consciousness to a process of alchemical distillation so as to reveal the deeper universal dynamics of experience descriptive of actual occasions of every grade. So I guess I was curious about that process of alchemical distillation. And you you mentioned that there are different kinds of practices that can be drawn upon to bring something like that about. So yeah, what, do you, what, what are you talking about there? What are you into? So I think, you know, I've been influenced a lot by Carl Jung's attempt to reread the alchemical literature in a psychological register, such that the symbolism at play in that literature is, is, I mean, that's the whole point is we must, as modern people, the only way we could sort of squeeze value out of it is to consider it in a symbolic or archetypal way rather than uh, imagining that, oh, this is just a precursor to chemistry and they just didn't know what they were talking about and thought that they could actually produce gold out of other substances. And it's the, the point here is not to say that they weren't actually attempting to do that in some cases. The point right. is, what is achieved in the effort? And I think the transformation that is achieved was always intended, and, and Jung helps us see how, at least nowadays, we can see it as intending to to be a psychological and a spiritual transformation in ourselves, but that you go through phases and, and sometimes you have to give up a lot in order to get what you maybe didn't even know you wanted. When we think of consciousness, human consciousness, we tend to think that what is actually superficial and accidental about it is, is what's essential. And Whitehead helps us, helps me at least understand that what is truly essential about consciousness is not rationality, is not language, is is not these these more human types of of, of qualities that we want, might want to attach to it. That there's this deeper process of feeling that if we can distill off the surface levels and and reconnect with, puts us in touch with the very ground of cosmic becoming and. Mm-hmm. I think this is, you know, I don't, I don't claim to have fully worked it out in this book, but I think there's a new research method here okay, um, for understanding the cosmic past and understanding the very nature of causality uh, at work in the physical world. That's not just through abstract modeling, not just through mathematics, but through, um, I don't want this to be misunderstood as a kind of phenomenology, because I think there are very important differences between Whitehead's account of experience and what the phenomenologists in the Husserlian stream were up to, which is more idealist. I mean, once you get to Merle Ponty, once you get to Heidegger and Merle Ponty, I, I would Yeah, then we're, okay. then we're safe. Then we're okay. They're okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's still this Kantian thing going on in Husserl, for example. Um, and Whitehead's account of experience is not bracketing what might be beyond a certain kind of human consciousness mm-hmm. and just examining what arises in consciousness. No, Whitehead wants us to go below that. Yeah. And I think we can learn, we can gain real knowledge of the cosmic past by accessing a kind of cosmic memory when we do this type of alchemical distillation to get below the, the superficial features of our own experience. And this is this is a practice that's quite difficult. I, I mean, there are there are traditions that claim to help us do this. I don't know how to, at this point, evaluate which is is more effective, but I think it's possible. Yeah. The other thing that was in there too, and you, you sort of touched on it just now, is that I, I think there's a fairly good argument there for, on one hand, 
when you talk about methodology, reintroducing the observer into the apparatus of discovery. And, and at the same time, I think it also makes a case for something like maybe I'd call it like a weak anthropocentrism, right? Mm-hmm. Where you can, again, we're not pre-critical here, but you can now say something like man is the measure of all things. And it's, it's not cringe. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Something like that old hermetic microcosm, macrocosm yeah. analogy, I think becomes relevant again in a post-Kantian context. Whitehead helps us understand how there's no reason to assume, and in fact, good reason to, to assume and to affirm that human consciousness is continuous with the cosmos, right? Uh, we didn't get parachuted into, into this universe from outside of it. We are an expression of it. And clearly there are layers of, you know, em- emergent layers of, uh, well, sense experience through our physical sense organs and cultural accretions through thousands of years of human history that shape our sense of, of what it's possible to perceive and indeed shape our very perception. And so it takes, yeah, this, this work of distillation to get below all that, but there's no reason in principle that we can't do that sort of excavation. Mm-hmm. Right. As Whitehead says, consciousness has truck with the totality of things. And philosophy's role is to get below what is superficial and, and special, unique to our species, to recontact the totality. Yeah. So I mean, I have like a bunch more questions I could ask you, but I don't want to take all your time. And then I, I've got some questions from from listeners because I said, hey, I'm gonna be speaking to Matt. What should I ask him? Um Gary Herstein, Herstein. Oh yeah. He's in a reading group that I I'm in. Um, he's a nice guy. He says, uh, this is not intended as a gotcha question, but maybe check in about any updates on the micro scale physics community. Are they still a bunch of string theory zombies shuffling down their departmental corridors, moaning about brains, (laughs) there's a pun, um, or are there cracks appearing in the facade? I ask because I do not know myself. And he thinks that you're a little more in touch with that area. And he's just wondering about that. I mean, fundamental physics, as far as I can tell, is a mess at the moment. Yeah. Um, and and astrophysics, particle physics and astrophysics, because I think everybody, well, everybody whose funding doesn't depend on continuing to toe the line is well aware, which is a lot of them, that the old paradigms are inadequate and that there's new data that yeah. doesn't fit and string theory isn't even it's very beautiful mathematics but i don't even know that i would call it physics if it's in principle untestable <laughs> but you know when you look at what the james webb space telescope is revealing and how the astrophysics community and the physical cosmology communities are trying to um respond to that there's a lot of reason to believe that we are on the verge of a a shift in paradigm that might rival not only the einsteinian revolution or quantum revolution but like the copernican revolution right yeah when i see those pictures on the james telescope and they say there's these galaxies that are like 10 times the size they're supposed to be according to our models right i just have my fingers crossed and i'm like when are they going to figure out that the big bang isn't what they thought it was yeah. It's not that it didn't happen. It's that it's still happening. I mean, that's my take on it. I feel like the Big Bang keeps on banging. <laughs> and it's just like what we call the Big Bang is just like a horizon, a kind of real physical horizon that we can't see past. I don't know. What's your take on it? Well, in the book, I I flirt with Roger Penrose's idea that there's he thinks that there's 
a way of interpreting the cosmic microwave background radiation as having these this sort of evidence of fossilized universes like in mm. the past, or like echoes of prior big bangs. And so I think it's called the concentric cosmology. It's a continuous creation model. Oh, is that the, yeah. the one that's like they're in sequential? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Right. And then there's other cosmologists like Lee Smolin, who thinks that black holes are actually new universes being born and that there's a kind of uh, evolutionary selection of universes that shape new fundamental constants and and laws of physics and so on in each one of them. And, you know, I playfully speculate using some of Whitehead's ideas about multiple cosmic epochs. And, you know, I'm pushing his idea of God more in the direction of, you know, some of what Hartshorn would say about it, that God's more a society than an actual entity. And so each cosmic epoch has its own kind of world soul or its own divinity, but that there might be some inheritance from prior epochs so that there's a continual growth of a divine lineage, if you want, Mm. um, learning from birth to death and rebirth in in a new cosmic epoch, learning something about how to effectively intensify experience in, in each go around. So a kind of divine reincarnation, if you want. And obviously this is all very speculative, but I think, yeah, we're at that point where the current paradigms in physical cosmology have just reached their limits. And so it's time to speculate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, I have that vision of, um, you know, in the cartoons, the the little rowboat is taking on leaks and they're just trying to plug one in and the, the more water's <laughs> coming in. I feel like that's kind of where we're at with that. But yeah, so my friend Luke Higgins asks, uh, well, he wrote this. Do which, if any aspects of Whiteheadian theology have emerged for you in the last few years as less appealing or less suited to our collective interests or needs, and whether Whiteheadian process theology might be at risk of reifying God over against the world too much, parenthetically, imposing too much of a Protestant-style dualistic separation, uh, which makes sense given John Cobb's Protestant lineage? Yeah, that, that question mark belongs there. I'm taken with the suggestion that process theology's direct and simple theodicy is paid for by the price of drawing possibly too firm a line between God and the world, as opposed to Neoplatonist-style emanation theology or Vedantic non-dualism. You just want to get your take on if there's any merit to those kinds of things. Sure, yeah, yeah. I know, Luke. I appreciate that question. As I just said, you know, I'm perfectly happy to sort of tinker with Whitehead's view, viewing God more as a society of occasions than as an actual entity, though that raises new problems with the metaphysical scheme that need to be worked out. But I'm not so worried about why does theology making God separate from the world? I would almost see Neoplatonism as potentially more at risk of that than Whitehead's theology in the sense that in an emanationist scheme, anything physical is literally nothing. You know, everything just overflows from the one and becomes less and less real as it goes. And so if you want a cosmology that honors the material world, the physical nature as uh, in some sense ensouled and partaking in the divine nature, then I don't think, you know, Platonism is where you want to go with it. Though I think there are deeper readings of, of Plotinus and ways to read Plotinus against this rather admittedly simplistic reading of emanation, but I, I just on the surface of it, I'd be more worried about dualism in Neoplatonism than I would in Whitehead's theology. Yeah, fair. All right. So um, let's see. The last one was from Kazi Adi Shakti. 
I know Kazi too. <laughs> okay, we're we all know the same people. Okay, cool. <laughs> she says, um, where does process lie in the foundationalism versus anti or non-foundationalism debate? Given that its fundamental constituents, actual occasions, immediately perish as they arise, and that ultimate of ultimates, creativity, is only actual in virtue of its creations, it would seem that process falls in the non-foundationalist category, or is minimally foundationist only in a weak sense. Yeah, I, I definitely read Whitehead's process philosophy as anti-foundationalist, mm. because yes, he's engaging in systematic metaphysics, but he says he wants to keep his system open. And he says all of his categories are in a way um, open to revision and are intended to be distilled from experience and not imposed upon experience. And I mean, he really exemplifies this in process and reality on page 250, I believe he abolishes one of his categories and says, oh, we don't need that one. Didn't bother to revise the table at the front of the book, but um, you know, he's very flexible in his use of a categorical scheme to interpret experience and wants the scheme to be uh, accountable to experience in the sense that if something doesn't fit, if some experience doesn't fit, then the, the scheme needs to be adjusted. And he's very clear that the concrete explains the abstract and not the other way around. Um, so yeah, it's no question about it. It's anti-foundationalist, but it wants to at least preserve the attempt at systematicity because reason reason demands it in a way it's just that reason needs to be brought down to size a bit and and reminded that it can't just swallow experience especially in the context of a universe that's caught up in a creative advance right you've got to land the plane at some point absolutely right yeah yeah i guess my last question is um i don't know i haven't really thought this through very much but i have a sort of vague um idea of a question i want to ask you about the possible sympathies between process thought things like perpetual perishing the idea that it's non-foundationalist coming out of uh, a death of god tradition that's something that i want to kind of think more about um in process thought god becomes secularized and secularization is a, an important category for death of god theology I'm not trying to really conflate the two. It's just kind of like an ongoing interest that I have. And I'm trying to figure out like what the central or pivotal term might be. I'm sort of leaning towards deconstruction right now, but not in a purely textual sense, but in a um, understanding the world as a weaving of textures, if that makes sense. Um, and when deconstruction being a process without an agent, any mm -hmm. thoughts on any uh, that sort of stuff? Yeah, well, you know, I guess Catherine Keller and and David Ray Griffin had attempted to popularize this notion of constructive postmodernism. Um, I don't know how successful or en enduring that effort has been. I, I hadn't heard about that. That's that's interesting. Um, I think I have noticed that there's a sort of increasingly antagonistic popular dismissal of anything postmodern, and they read de deconstruction as literally like taking apart, which turns out is not at all what Heidegger or Derrida meant by the term. It's more about opening up possibilities for new interpretation. And I'm lucky to have some, some colleagues and friends who are deep into Derrida, who I haven't read thoroughly at all and have helped me um, understand some of this. And I, I also appreciate Keller in her reading of negative theology, just showing, and it's already in Derrida too, but 
just showing how much continuity there actually is here. Um, and so rather than seeing deconstruction as an attack on the tradition, it's really just a way of opening up the nuance in the tradition. And so I'm all for that sort of, I mean, I love John Caputo's work. Um, I think it's really generative and it's, I think it's compatible with process theology. Um, it's just a matter of understanding Whitehead's approach to metaphysics as not ontotheological. Um, I think it's, it's very clearly not, but at first blush, you might think that it is. And process and reality has probably been um, neglected because everyone assumes he's just doing the same old ontotheology. Can you say more about that? I suppose I have a an idea of him doing a kind of ontotheology. So can you disabuse me of that? Um, creativity is his ultimate principle and God is its primordial accident. And so he's not equating being as such with God. He does have a theology, but it is a theology that he thinks we are justified in deriving from the texture of our experience. And so it's that simple, really. He, he, there's the creativity is his ultimate principle, and he does not attribute divinity to that principle, but rather sees God as ac an accident, a creature. God <laughs> is a creature of creativity. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. There was a time when I might have, but I don't really necessarily have anything against ontotheology. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's 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 just that the there's a you know really deep twentieth century strain of thought that has torn it apart and i yeah so makes a lot of people allergic to that sort of approach but i don't think white is taking that approach so yeah yeah so what's next what what do you want people to know about what you're up to or or how to get in touch with you that sort of thing yeah uh i mean you can always find my most recent work at my my blog my website footnotes to plato that's number two uh dot com and um I'm always trying to find new ways of applying process thought. And uh, if anyone's going to Munich for the Whitehead, International Whitehead Conference, I'll see you there uh, in, in July. Oh, I'll also plug the Whitehead and Tehar conference that I'll be at uh, in September at Villanova uh, University. Oh, that's cool. That's not too far from here. I might be able to drive down to that one. Please do. That'd be yeah. fun. Yeah. Are you are you, uh, you presenting there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, um, looking forward to all of that. And um, yeah, I guess if I, if I haven't said it already, you know, people should buy the book. I'll link to it in the notes. Like I said, it's really beautifully written and I think uh, generative in, in some, some really interesting ways. And, you know, the epilogue is kind of like where you just kind of start preaching. Um, it's, kind of like, it's kind of like section five in um, Process and Reality. That's like yours. <laughs> Thanks, Matthew. Yeah, man. Thanks again. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. Bye. <laughs> have fun with SpongeBob. <laughs> Thanks.